Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Friends and colleagues to this very special event on storytelling and social justice, Bajari Gamarawa. We meet on Gadigal land tonight and I pay my respects to Gadigal elders and I acknowledge our Aboriginal colleagues here in the room this evening. My name is Jonathan Hunyor. For those I haven't met, I'm the CEO of the Public Interest Advocacy Centre and we're really delighted to have so many of you here joining us this evening. Stories make change. They change us. They change history. So tonight we're absolutely delighted to be joined by Susie Miller, one of Australia's most compelling storytellers, with her latest play, RBG, we're enormously grateful that she's taken the time to speak with us this evening. Susie and her body of work will be known to many of you. She's drawn to human stories, often exploring injustice. Her plays have been produced around the world and notwithstanding the impact of the pandemic, if you haven't either seen Prima Facie or heard it discussed, you may be the only one in the room. After its success on London's West End and in cinemas as part of the National Theatre Live series, Prima Facie will transfer to Broadway next year. Nicole Abadie writes about books and much more for The Good Weekend. She's a regular facilitator at writers' festivals and speaks to Australian and international writers about their latest releases on her podcast, Books, Books, Books. As many of you will know, both Susie and Nicole are also escaped lawyers and we're particularly proud to claim Susie amongst our PIAC alumni. Will you please welcome Susie Miller and Nicole Aberdeen. Thank you for such a lovely introduction, Jonathan. It's an absolute honour and a pleasure to be here. Welcome to tonight's event in support of all of the fantastic work that PIAC is doing in so many different areas, but particularly in working to raise the age of criminal responsibility. You'll be hearing more about that campaign later, which obviously a very significant one and one that Susie's work, as we're going to hear, has touched upon. I'm especially delighted to be in conversation with the brilliant playwright, <laughs> former human rights lawyer, and I have to say my proudest claim to fame, close friend, Susie Miller. I can't think of anyone better qualified to speak on the topic of storytelling and social justice. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and paying my respect to their elders past and present. We're going to start with a couple of general questions and then we're going to talk about three of Susie's plays in particular. I'd like to talk about a lot more than that, but I think we'll probably only have time to talk about three of them. Transparency, Prima Facie and Jail Baby, which is one that hasn't been on yet, but it's coming to Griffin next year. If we have time, we'll talk about RBG, which if you don't already know is the hottest ticket in town. <laughs> it's the most fantastic 
piece of theatre. She is one of my best friends. <laughs> but everybody is saying that. If everybody was talking about Prime Facey a few months ago, I think you'll find that most people are talking about RBG right now. Susie, you studied law at UNSW, first in your family to go to university. And then after a short stint at Freehills, you moved into the human rights sphere. We had an amazing career in that space, working for, as I was going through them, all the big names, the Aboriginal Legal Service, PIAC, as you've mentioned, Jonathan, Marrickville Legal Centre as a children's lawyer, and finally the Shopfront Legal Centre in King's Cross, where your clients were the homeless, sex workers and people working, or people with drug addictions. Now, you were doing that a couple of, or a few days a week, I gather, and at the same time, and here's the segue, you were studying to be a playwright at NIDA. I was. Your first play, Cross Sections, was largely based on your experience working at Shopfront, and you have said, I thought this was really interesting, that the audience reaction to that play led to your belief that stories can raise awareness, change people and communities. And you came to realise that you could have more impact with my plays than my daily court battles. Mm. I'm really interested in that, as I'm sure everyone else in the room would be. Could you talk about that idea, about how you can have more impact with your plays than you could have as a lawyer uh, representing individual clients and how that then influenced your decision to make the um, the jump in 2010 from being <laughs> a lawyer and a part-time playwright yeah. to being a full-time playwright. Absolutely. It's not to say that the law and the storytelling and the law wasn't important because obviously it was. I just had an overwhelming experience with that first play. And just to background a little bit, I was doing a lot of work in the local court, in the criminal justice system there doing, and the district court doing hearings and also doing sentence matters. And in particular, the sentence matters, what I found was the most successful way of conducting a sentence matter was to actually really contextualise my client, I was going to say my character, my client in their life and actually call upon the judiciary, at whoever was sitting on the case, um, to actually take that into account. So, for example, I would have a young client who had been arrested for something pretty serious and looking at a jail sentence and with, a, you know, a history of um, other, other matters previously. And I remember I had great success if I put together what I called the Rolls-Royce of the sort of get-out-of-jail kind of compact and I would actually make a submission based on my client that would be quite passionate, actually, because I really believed what I was saying. But, of course, I don't need to believe it to say it, as we know, as a criminal lawyer. It's, you are the spokesperson of that person anyway. And the more that you connect to their story, I felt that I could say to a judge, you know, when this young man was three and he was found by police in an abandoned car having been sexually assaulted, the state didn't step in. They just delivered him home. And when he was delivered home to drug-addicted parents, nobody stepped in to help him. He didn't come before the services. The state has never actually given him an opportunity. And the first time that he's before the state where he's looking at going to be incarcerated, there is an opportunity for the state to step in now and say yes to this Rolls-Royce um, package I've put together that allows him to be re to go into some rehab for drug rehabilitation, to have some fantastic um, 
some fantastic psychology, to really be embedded in a system that Shopfront was able to put together because we had the resources. And we had the resources because Freehills paid for those resources. But what was, and I would say it's only available today, if he actually goes to prison tomorrow, that all dissolves. So it gave the, I guess, the judge sitting the opportunity to go, okay, I see this, I can take a risk because the risk is not so large that he will be out in the world. He will actually be embedded in this particular structure. So it was actually about putting yourself in the shoes of the person who was making the decision and taking as much risk away as possible so that the story could ring true and there was, the, there was a chance that person could stay out of prison just that little bit longer, which was really the aim of Shopfront in many ways, was keep as many young people out of prison for as long as possible to give them the opportunity to seek services or to be actually uh, connected to family in some way because most of them weren't. So they were homeless young people, as Nicole mentioned. They had drug or mental health problems and they also were working in the sex industry. So it was a really, really significantly difficult cohort of, of young um, I'm not going to say offenders because some of them weren't offenders, but young accused. Um, but I found that actually telling the story with as much detail and giving the really the significance of that, the weight it deserved, really allowed the court really sat with it and would go, "Wow, that's like a really bad story." So I didn't. It wasn't skimming over. It wasn't like my client instructs that when he was three, there was an issue that um, you know that he was in contact with the police. It really personalised it in a way to that human being. And I think putting a human being at the centre of a story mm. in the criminal justice system is one of the best things that you can do for them. But having said that, when I was in that system and I was honestly working every day in court with like multiple cases and multiple courts, I did feel like I was plugging up leaks left, right and centre because most of those people went back out and they were back in that court again. And as much as, you know, I felt it was a really valuable job, I thought my storytelling actually, I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> and so the first play, Cross Sections, that I wrote was 24 hours in King's Cross within that community and sort of showing... I guess, humanising their stories, but also humanising how they tried to support each other in some ways that worked and other ways that were pretty hopeless, to be honest. But that 24 hours in King's Cross story, Cross Sections, went on in King's Cross at a very small theatre called The Old Fits that many may have gone to, which is very much where playwrights start out in this city. And then it transferred to the Opera House. And what was really amazing for me, the experience I had was that in that transfer... 360 people saw every show mm. and so many of them emailed me or wrote to my agent or wrote generally to the theatre to say the impact it had on them. And the people that saw it at the Old Fit said, I, now, I don't drive through King's Cross in the same way anymore. I drive through and I see these people and I know they have a story and that they mm. could be my cousin's friend or my friend's daughter or they could be connected to the life that I lead. And I think the more that you can contextualise someone in the lives that we lead, the more that you can actually have empathy for people and you can actually think twice before you drive through the through King's Cross and just point out, oh, there's a prostitute or there's a drug addict. And it was just, it's a very simple gesture, but it's really just about humanising people. And that's what stories do. So Susie, is that what you mean when you took me, when you made this point, which I thought was very interesting, that you came to realise that you could have more impact with your plays than with your daily court battles? 
was that because of the response that you got from people, because you realised you were reaching 360 people every night for X number of nights? Yes, yes. And I was telling the same stories at dinner parties, but it would sort of fall very flat. People would go... <laughs> In fact, my poor husband, who's here tonight, would go, can you, like, stop that? Because everyone doesn't know what to say after you said, well, I took six sexual assault statements today and all of them were really similar, and they go, oh, God, OK. <laughs> it's hard to talk about, you know, someone who was, like, <laughs> running a restaurant. or So he said, yeah, you're a bit of a social nightmare to take out. Um, so, in a way, cross-sections was me writing about... People say, write what you know. That's what mm. I knew. So, I wrote about it. And it had this incredible experience. It was an incredible experience for me. I mean, first of all, it was... Everyone says, you're only a playwright if your first player is a success. Otherwise, you'd never do it again. And it's true because it was very successful, that play. And I thought, well, this is easy. How hard can it be? <laughs> so, Susie, uh, was it a difficult decision then in 2009, 2010 to devote yourself full-time to playwriting to put the law behind you? It was only because I actually really loved the law. So I think people assume that I didn't and that's why I left. But I really loved what I did. I really loved the kind of work and the opportunities that job gave me to speak out and to be part of a dialogue about human rights. But I had this one experience again with cross-sections but also with other plays leading up to leaving. And I went and gave a lecture at Sydney University to... They weren't law students. I think they were theatre students. And one student came up to me afterwards and said, my sister died on the streets in King's Cross and I've hated her for what she did to my family but now I understand the despair. And I thought, gosh. And she said, and now I've really re-embraced my love for her. And I thought, wow, if story can do that, then, you know, that's an amazing thing and I really that really meant something to me. I thought even if there were no reviews or whatever, that one young woman had a kind of epiphany about a family member and that, that, that was really valuable to me. Mm. So when I got to 2009, <laughs> I was offered a position as a, as a magistrate and I was also offered a, um, as a playwright, I was offered a residency at the National Theatre in London, which was kind of the dream. Tougher. <laughs> but it, it also What made, would you have done? It, it, was, it was literally a fork in the road that you go, wow, what am I going to do? Of course, my husband wanted me to stay in the law because I had a salary. Um, but, <laughs> but as it turned out, I just, I just knew that I really passionately wanted to, um, wanted to take up on this opportunity in London and see what was possible. And I'd already had a show that had been on in Edinburgh and in New York. So I did feel that I wanted to have an international voice and it seemed like the greatest opportunity. And so we all upsticked, ups, upped sticks and moved to London for that year. And Robert came and went and worked here and hung out there and just tried to balance it all. But the kids and I were there and I was doing that work. And you know, thinking maybe I'll go back to law, but actually realising at the end of it that that was the career that I really wanted. So let's talk about one of your early plays, Transparency, which is very relevant, I think, to the campaign that we're here to support tonight. You won the Kit Denton Fellowship for Writing with Courage for this script. I'd like you to tell us about the play and the issues that you wanted to explore. Yeah, it was a really, it was a really complex play for me because... I was doing all of these sentencing matters and talking about rehabilitation. And then I thought, what is rehabilitation? And how do we know when we've actually achieved rehabilitation? And I realised it's actually an act of faith by the community. And I thought, do I really believe in it then, if it's an act of faith? I'm not good with acts of faith. Um, having said that, 
I, I started to really meditate about a 10-year-old committing a crime. This is the extreme version, obviously. A 10-year-old committing a crime, are they the same person at 36 when they're cognitively developed and yet they're still harbouring the kind of consequences of that 10-year-old crime? And, of course, I took the worst possible crime. Everyone compared it to the Jamie Bolger case. It wasn't actually based on that, but certainly there were elements that were sig significantly similar. And just remind people about that case. Susie. Oh, the Jamie Bolger case is where a group of 10-year-old boys actually killed a two-year-old child, a two-year-old boy. I in mean, England. In England, sorry, in Liverpool. And um, they both were tried as adults and then they were sent to prison until they were quite 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 a bit older, like as in they were there all their childhood and then they went to an adult prison. And then they have a life licence, they call it in the UK, for the rest of their life where they're out on parole. And one of them has re-offended, the other one hasn't. Having said that, to me it was like... If you're under an assumed identity and you're 36 and you're not allowed to be around children but it's for a crime that you committed at 10, I wanted to interrogate who that 10-year-old was and I came up with this concept that everyone was blaming these children but I thought if it takes a village to raise a child, where did the village go wrong? Not where did the child go wrong because what was the life of those children that that could happen? And as it turned out, they'd been sexually abused, they'd been violently offended against... On, over and over within their family home. Uh, they only knew violence. They'd only been templated violence. And one of the saddest things I read about a young boy who was up for murder and being tried as an adult is he sat in court and he later on um, gave an interview where he said, I sat in court and I didn't understand. I knew what I was there for. He was being tried as an adult, as a 10-year-old. And he said, but I, I, I kept thinking... I'll, after this is over, I'll ride my bike over and I'll give the child, this two-year-old, my best, my most favourite toy because I feel really bad that we hurt him. And I thought, look at what they're doing. They're trying a child that's not cognitively able to even comprehend the complexity and the finality of what mm. had happened. And, it, and, you know, because I was a children's lawyer and I was very much a children's advocate, within that children's law um, group of lawyers that I worked with, we always felt very strongly that... The, 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 to try children so young. And also I felt very strongly that children in prison is definitely not the way to deal with children. And, and in fact, in Sweden, some of the research I did for transparency was that in Sweden they had a similar case to the Jamie Bolger case. However, they actually kept the anonymity of the child who was the offending child and basically didn't want to throw the second child to the wolves at the same time as the first child had died, but actually really encircled them with community support and community rehabilitation so that that child would have an outcome where they wouldn't be, I guess, their life wouldn't be over as well. And it actually had a really great response. So I thought it's really interesting how two different cultures dealt with it. One said the community is responsible and one said the child is responsible. And I think that to actually... I, I don't think a child in isolation commits crimes without having been taught a certain way of being in the world. Um, and, I mean, that's my personal belief. But having said that, most without, of the, As you say, without being having been failed by the system. Yeah, exactly. So the system has failed to step in enough times and the village has not actually raised the child appropriately. And as a consequence, there's a terrible thing that happens. But I think it's about who takes responsibility for that. And I think that this age of consent is a real issue for me and it definitely must be raised. 
because it's not the answer, and I think the Swedish model definitely, well, not the Swedish, the Scandinavian model definitely shows that, that you're actually just dooming another child, basically. And I can tell you from all the young people I ever saw in prison, which is why I wrote this as well, it really was never the answer. I went from, I went from you know, juvenile detention to juvenile detention, and it's much worse than people imagine, and it's also really dehumanising for the children. And... They are very much learn other behaviour within that context that means that when they come out, there's very little hope for a future without an offending pattern. So you're actually, if you're going to look at it from a public person, a public perspective, you're only doing the public more damage by sending a child into prison and to a control order that early. So that's what that play was all about. I mean... <laughs> Let's talk now about prima facie. As Jonathan sure. said, you'd have to have been under a rock over the last six months if you hadn't heard about it. It was originally performed at Griffin Theatre in 2019, then, of mm. course, in the West End in London earlier this year, starting jo starring Jodie Comer, where there was a sellout season, huge critical acclaim for Susie and for Jodie. I should mention that here in Australia it won a slew of awards for Susie and that it's likely she and Jodie are likely to be nominated for a whole slew of awards in the UK. It deals with complex issues around how the criminal, again, a failure of the system, how the criminal justice system fails female victims or complainants of sexual assault. You say in the director's notes to the play that this is a play that had been playing out in your mind since law school days. What were the issues you wanted to highlight and why was 2019 finally the right time to do that? Well, I think anyone who's been, well, we've all been, most people have been to law school. That's, I'm usually, I say, anyone that's been to law school. Um, when I was at law school, the criminal, the criminal law was taught where we learnt a lot about sexual assault and we knew about the actus reus, the mens rea, and then, you know, like how it all panned out. But then you would also look at the cross-examination of a sexual assault victim that has changed so significantly, I might add. But having said that, the lived experience of a woman who's been sexually assaulted was never taken into account in terms of they are up against every odd. Now, I'm a defence lawyer, so for me to say this is something huge because I believe in innocence until proven guilty until they, you know, knock the sense out of me. But there was just something about the fact that I, the fact that I believe in that and the black, fact that I believed in the system was the only way I could operate within the criminal justice system. But I felt really, really nervous about sexual assault because I didn't believe that consent was the only thing that was operational, that you should be cross-examined around consent the way it was happening. Did you do cross-examine? Did never, you do cross-examinations of sexual assault victims? I never, the reason I didn't go to the bar was I didn't want to be on the cab rank rule to do sexual assault. And I actually did a year of my law degree at the University of Toronto where Catherine McKinnon came to speak to all of us and Professor Catherine McKinnon was from New York. And, of course, I was so excited, young feminist at law school. There's Catherine McKinnon. And I think this dialogue was started there and I really stuck in my head and I thought I felt angry. I had that rage that a young feminist has that doesn't know how to have the conversation in a way that actually makes it clear why you're outraged. And I think also as a criminal lawyer I went to dinner parties with non-lawyers who would always say, and even some lawyers, how can you act for people you know are guilty? And I thought, well, that's not my job. I'm not the judge. I'm not even, I'm not the jury. I'm actually the voice piece for someone. If I do my job well enough, you will think that I'm totally on side with them. <laughs> but it was an interesting thing because I thought 
actually, when it comes to sexual assault, I look at the prosecutor role and think they're ne- they're never going to win. Like there's there's just so it's a real he said she said, and some of the rules have not been cleverly thought out about how a woman experiences that. So. Um, Fast forward a long time to 2019 and I I suddenly, you know, I was telling myself this story in my head all the time about how I would explain to people who ask this question of me in a sort of dispassionate way that doesn't make them think that I'm screaming at them. And I thought about if I take a sec, if I take a how you'd explain lawyer, the flaws in the system. Yeah, yeah, but and I thought, why don't I just tell the story of someone like myself who's a defence lawyer who really believes in the system, but someone I know a lot of my barrister friends who do work in sexual assault, and what happens when it happens to them and they're on the other side, so that you actually see someone. In, like who loves the law, believes in the law, you then don't see the sexual assault, but you know it's happening so that you've been privy to something that the court case hasn't been privy to, which it happened. But I didn't want to do a voyeuristic thing by bringing a male actor in and act it out. I just wanted us to believe that it happened and then have her cross-examined on that story and see how it's twisted so that, in fact, there's no way she could she could really ever have her truth um, come out in court in a way that she could express it or or she's cross-examined in a way to make her look like a liar because I guess that's what you have to do. Um, but also just the way that the law has actually been built and no offence to all the men in the audience but by generations and generations of white men, usually wealthy white men to be honest. And I thought they, they will never understand that experience from a personal perspective, only on a second-hand retelling. Um, and I thought women don't have a strong enough voice on that. So I wrote the story really thinking this is a one-person play about rape it's never going to go on I thought maybe I could ask the old fits if they'll do it because you know they've got a small stage and there's only a 60 people audience so maybe we could do it there I thought I'd even ask a young actor that had just graduated who was one of my goddaughters I thought maybe I'll gift it to her because she really wants to get to know and then and, and for some reason I mean I just put it into the Griffin Award because you often do that with a play that you've just written off the cuff and when it won the Griffin Award and then Lee and everyone wanted to put it on, I was quite astonished actually, but delighted as well, never thinking for a second what would happen happened. And in fact, my mum died during the rehearsal period, so I wasn't even there for most of it. And I was, you know, online sort of doing corrections at night because I was down in Melbourne at the hospital. And then when it sort of went on, I think Nikki was one of my um, one of my part- people, one of my invites for my opening night. And, you know, I had no With Heather sense. Mitchell. With Heather Mitchell, my other good friend. I don't know where Robert was. <laughs> anyway, I took my girlfriends, my besties, and... Um, and then suddenly it just went wild. And I did have a producer in um, London who I'd worked with a lot, uh, who, who had looked at a lot of my work and wanted to produce something of mine. And I didn't send him this with a view to him even producing it. I just thought he might like to read it. And he read it and said, I want to put it on the West End like ASAP. And then, of course, COVID happened. So it did take a while. I thought I might be the only playwright in the world that has a show on at the West End that it'll get cancelled. And I nearly got there, but I didn't make it. But it did get there. So it's great. So I want to talk about that. We're here tonight interested in this whole idea about how storytelling can affect social justice. Mm. I'd like you to tell us about the response in the UK to the play, and in particular something that we've talked about quite a lot, your meetings with judges yeah. and criminal lawyers, um, yeah. <laughs> and some of, you know, some of the responses that you yeah. had and the, those very... Look, I've had a very tangible impact. Yeah, I've had some great responses in Australia as well. Just to start, we had one night at the theatre which was just women, legally trained women, which included judges, 
barristers, solicitors and politicians. I think Tanya Plebisek was there, who I didn't realise was legally trained. Anyway, um, it was amazing when that, that, that world of women... It's the only time I've had an audience of just women. And the Q&A afterwards, which, with a very shocked actor and director who sat there going, I don't know how to answer any of these questions from these, all these legally trained people. It went on for two or three hours. It just went on and on and on. And in fact, the director, Lee Lewis, who's now up at Queensland Theatre, but was the artistic director of Griffith at the time, said she has never had an experience like that. And I guess neither had I. But of course, you know, lawyers are collegiate. We do love to be in dialogue. We do love to get to the nitty-gritty of something and find out what's possible. And other women shared experiences they'd had within the legal system themselves or even within the law or at the bar themselves. And it was a really special night. So that, that, was, that, that was sort of ringing in my ears as, you know, like I went to London knowing that there was this great possibility of talking to lawyers about it. But I got invited to the Old Bailey for a lunch with all the judges at the Old Bailey, one of which I'd been introduced to who was championing the play having read it and she really loved it and so but I didn't realize the lunch was with all of the judges I really thought it was just with her who was lovely and we were going to have some sandwiches somewhere in a cafe and so when I rocked up a bit late um, I had on my jeans and boots and I don't know what my London playwright gear and um and when I, and I actually the director was with me he had on a beanie and he had different shoes on each feet because he got mixed up <laughs> he's and an we, Australian as well right well he he went to school in Australia but he's actually Irish British but he um and we rocked up and then we were seated at different sides of the table he was absolutely beside himself because he was he's not a lawyer he's going oh my god but I was going wow this is incredible and it really was an, a fascinating conversation they'd all bought their tickets already they were all they'd all read the play I don't know how but they'd all got mm. copies of the play they were asking for signatures and so forth but then um and then I went and sat in on a lot of the cases they were doing at the old bailey which were amazing and of course you know what judges are like you see them over a table for dinner and they're fairly normal then suddenly they're like really scary in court I was like whoa that same woman that I just shared you know my pate with was suddenly going I I won't have any of that in my court. <laughs> and of course, the old Bailey, I mean, that's where all the major trials were. So we were sitting in court one where Fred Bundy or whatever, what's his name? You know, the huge serial killer was tried. And I thought, oh, this is amazing. And and they all came and they all wrote, they all wrote articles about it. They did. I was on a podcast with somebody and all of the, all of the bar as well were very, the, the criminal bar were really supportive as well. And they've actually set up two things. One is the school consent project, mm. which a young barrister had already had in place. And then it just, it paired with the play and it's just gone gangbusters now. Tell us about that, Susie. That was, I was going to ask so you about, about that. So that's about barristers volunteering and going into the school system, into different classrooms and basically talking about the complexity of consent and how it changes moment to moment and how, and how to actually navigate that. And um, when you say the play part, I, I read this too, that the production partnered with that mm -hmm. project. What does that mean? So we raised a lot of money for that. Mm -hmm. We actually put a, a cut of the profits towards wow. that organisation. And we had one night where the poor understudy who was desperate to do the show, but Jodie wouldn't give her a night. <laughs> we put on an extra matinee and that sold out very quickly and all the funds from that went straight to, without any cut for anyone, wow. went straight to the School Consents Project. And people donated afterwards. So they'd come out of the play and there was a big thing saying if you want to do something you can tap you know your credit card here and you can and so everyone just did I mean people were very very involved with the issues in the play.
And I saw somewhere you said that you received a text from a judge saying this is now on the agenda. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was amazing. Actually, it was a phone call. So one of the lawyers who I who had actually read the Australian script, one of the young barristers, to actually make sure the translation worked because, believe it or not, they don't say reasonable doubt there. Can you believe it? Like, I couldn't believe it. So it was all over the script. She goes, no, no, we just say really sure. I was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> So they say to the, 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 you know, their, their um, submission to their juries are, you have to be really sure. And I'm like, <laughs> but it's your concept. You made it up. They're like, yeah, well, that's what we mean, but we don't want to confuse juries. So we say, you must be really sure. So I had to take that out every time someone addressed a jury. Oh, but also there was another, there was the Brown and Dunn case in there where, I mean, I think in a flippant way, the character says, oh, he brown and done them within an inch of their life or something. And everyone went, what's brown and done? I thought, that's your case too. <laughs> we don't use that. We don't even know what it is. Like, the judges didn't know what it was. And so, and also that brown and done reference was a bit of an Easter egg for lawyers who are in my audience. And so I had to find another case to do that with, which I did. And of course, there's always this moment in the sort of 900 people in the theatre where there's a little laugh in various, I think, oh, they're the lawyers, they're the lawyers, in the expensive seats, I might add. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, oh, there's some in the audience. But yeah, so, and what happened is I got a call from a judge because she got my number from, or actually she, actually the barrister called me and said, I'm putting a judge on. And the judge came on and said, look, I'm the person that drafts the notes that judges must read in a sentence matter, oh, not a sentence matter, in a direction to a jury. And she said, I've redrafted it after I saw the play wow. when it comes to sexual assault. And that was just a moment for wow. me that was like glorious. I just went, wow, that is like storytelling allowing change to be affected in a very concrete manner. And yeah, I was pretty blown away by that. I mean, strange thing is that we've got a more we've got more majesty and kind of formality in uh, sort of courts and judges in Australia than they even have over there. They're all talking about what their salary is and how it's not enough. And I was like, oh God, no way! You'd never hear anyone in Australia talk about that stuff in the judiciary in the same way. So they're all sort of quite collegiate and quite sort of open, and um, their chambers are nowhere near as glamorous as any of the ones in Australia. I mean, I looked at some of their chambers, thought. Oh my God, <laughs> these are really sad. They're all so old and tiny and pokey. But um, yeah, but you know that was an amazing moment for me. I have to say. So that was it. That was really seeing your storytelling yeah. in its different form now from from what you did as a lawyer, having a tangible impact and potentially leading to changes in the law. I think you told me at one stage there was some discussion about oh, calling yes. the changes Tessa's Law. That's Tessa's right, the name of the is, character yeah. in the play. So, yeah, the character in the play is called Tessa, for those of you who haven't seen it, and a group of barristers and, like, key Casey's now, of course. That's the other thing I had to change in the play <laughs> when it goes to Broadway. They can't be QC's. Um, anyway, so there was a group of barris- women barristers and non-women barristers as well, actually, and some judges also feeding in that were making submissions to the Senate on consent, and they've called their group Tessa's, Tessa's Law, which is the examination of serious sexual assault law. How does Tessa. that feel, Susie? <laughs> Amazing, you know, like such a great... Uh, and that's where I went, wow, I really did make the right decision. Like mm. now I can kind of affect change in a way that I hadn't, you know, plugging all the leaks while I was doing those small sentence matters in the local court. It feels really like there's a chance to have a, have a really big impact. 
And of course, now there's no turning back, is there? <laughs> so let's talk very briefly. I know we're, we're running out of time, but let's sure. talk very briefly about an upcoming play that's coming to Griffin next year, mm-hmm. uh, which is also relevant to the, the subject matter of tonight's event. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about Jail Baby. I know that it's based on your experience as a children's lawyer. Mm-hmm. What are the issues that you wanted to highlight with this play? Without giving too much yeah, away, yeah, I can't give too much away. You're no. the first people to ever hear about it. Just in terms know. of what's in the what's sure. in the notes that so, are already yeah. public. So one of the things that you know, this, I mean, obviously there's people that will disagree with me here because you're all very high, highly educated lawyers. But one of the things that I grappled with when I was a children's lawyer was that so many of the laws were around property offences, and they seemed to carry really heavy sentences and prison sentences for young people like breaking and entering houses and stealing or what have you. And I understand that they're serious offences, but somehow they seem to get sometimes get worse sentences for that than hurting a person or like or threatening a person or sexually assaulting a person even. So it was just a really interesting thing where I just had this contemplation about law and I also taught legal system torts at UNSW, so it came sort of around that as well. This idea that the law was set up really for the aristocracy to protect their property and their property didn't just include their estate, it also included their wives. So if their wives were raped, it was an offence that they could claim compensation or they could deal out the punishment for. And so I thought if it actually started because we're actually protecting title and protecting land and protecting property, a lot of it still... I mean, this is my own theory, by the way, and this is the theory of the play, that actually we seem to care more about property than... The, the, the fragile humanity within the within within the service of protecting property, and so I took a young boy who we all have done these cases if you've ever worked in criminal law, where there's you know four boys, some of them are quite experienced at sort of break and enters and stealing, others are, are quite newbies, and one is so nervous that they're just the lookout or the cuckoo as we used to call them, and um, but they don't realise that with the law you know the doctrine of common purpose and the idea that they're all connected. <laughs> that they're going to be as guilty as the others of the same offence. And usually they end up carrying it because the others somehow get to escape and don't get caught red-handed or what have you. So I have a young boy who actually is part of that and thinks he's just on the he's just watching out. Unfortunately, he also sees a soccer top that he really likes, a soccer jersey he really likes at the house, and he takes that, which belongs to the son of the people who have the house. Um, and... I think the woman who is the mother of the son whose jersey got stolen, but also the television's gone and all sorts of things, in order to make a claim with their insurance, they have to report it to the police. And, of course, you do report those things to the police. I mean, we're all citizens. That's what we do. But then, of course, someone gets arrested, someone gets convicted, someone goes to prison often. And in my experience, the person that goes to prison is often someone that's the least involved, the most vulnerable, and the person that just didn't know how to conduct themselves when they got arrested like they didn't stop talking for one and um, and also they don't want to dob the other people in because then they're seen as being dogs on the street and that's even worse for them so they go to prison and I the the shocking thing for me was because I did go to a lot of jails to see my clients and so forth and when they came out and when they re-offended or what have you but you know often these and when you're a lawyer and a criminal lawyer your clients tell you things like you're a priest because they know that you have that secret you you can't tell other people and so I would be unfortunately privy to what happened to them in prison which was often being sexually assaulted in sometimes really horrendous ways Um, there's a fabulous magistrate who wrote a book called fear or favor which is about sexual assault of young boys in the prison system and 
because I worked at Shopfront and this happened so often and I heard these stories so often and they would beg me not to tell their girlfriends on the outside because they felt that that would really diminish their masculinity or they'd be teased or whatever. But also they had, um, when they came out of prison, you know, they were really damaged as a consequence of a heterosexual kind of power over them to make them into their kind of like girlfriend in, in prison sort of thing. But also just bearing witness to that was horrific for me and I just suddenly thought we seem to care more about the big smart screen television than we care about this person in prison and one time when I was in court down at the Downing Centre one of the magistrates said to a client you watch out if you do this again you're going to go to prison and guess what the boys that you'll meet in prison even their mothers don't like them and what they'll do to you will shock the hell out of you and I thought and I've actually got I've even got the reference for that where it was printed in the Daily Telegraph. But anyway, um, and I thought, my God, it's, sanks- it's state-sanctioned torture. Mm. Like, we're not doing anything about it. We're actually mm. saying that's part of your punishment, but mm. it's not part of your punishment. And it's not something that's supposed to happen. But we turn a complete blind eye, and even all of us in this room, including myself, when we, we don't actually take our government to task over it. We just assume it's part of what happens in prison. But when you see that up close, you go, no one comes out of that and isn't a very angry, very violent person. I can tell you now, it's a terrible, it's a terrible thing to inflict on a young person. It's really violent. It's horrific and it's damaging. And even when they go to the medical service in the, in the prison system, um, you know, they, they can't even... I mean, all everyone knows what's happened to them, but they can't tell on the person because then they just get even more damaged later. So it doesn't happen to everyone in prison, that's for sure, and it's better now than it was, but it still happens a lot. Susie, final question. I think it'll be obvious to... I mean, Sorry, that's I, we a really down. No, the, we, could keep, we could keep talking. But um, mm. my final question, it'll be obvious to everybody here tonight how much your work as a playwright is informed by your experience as a lawyer. And I just want you to give one example that we were talking about. So I'm I'm going to... Can't resist just asking Susie this one question about RBG because I think you'll love this answer. Tell us about the research that you did for that play. Well, (laughs) I read every single judgment she ever wrote. (laughs) I read every case she ever ran, I think. I mean, this is, remember there was a pandemic. I had a lot of time on my hands. (laughs) Also, I had every book that was written about her, every essay she wrote, every speech she wrote. I mean, every speech she gave that the transcript was available. I really immersed myself in everything to do with her. And I was really interested in her to start with, but I became increasingly so after reading how eloquently she put her, she put her case for things across, but also how thoughtful she was when she thought about social justice. Like, it wasn't just an afterthought or even a reason to be a lawyer. It was... It was beyond, I guess, it was a great intellect thinking about social justice in a way that really mattered. And I'm sorry I lied to you. I've got one more question. I'm (laughs) going to sneak in. Um, And this is my final question. Many playwrights and writers see their role as merely to tell an entertaining and engaging story. You do that in spades, but you obviously see your role as so much more than that to raise important social justice issues and force people to grapple with them. And I'm wondering... In your opinion, how effective is theatre as a medium to drive social change? Oh, okay. So, you know, I'm obviously not the only playwright that does that. But but, um, 
I think that storytelling and theatre is the sort of origin of so much of storytelling, has always done that. I think if you go right back to the Greeks, that those stories, in fact, a lot of those plays, we still see over and over again and uh, we're confronted by a dilemma where there's a social justice concept at the heart of it. And I think that human beings are naturally attracted to grappling with what, you know, a paradox and, and, and areas that we're not comfortable about in the way that we conduct the world and I think that's how we have a dialogue with each other so I think it's always been the case I'll just let everyone know that I'm also writing a few films and one of them's a rom-com <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I have to say that which is so out of character <laughs> that it was sort of in a time that I'm doing a rom-com so yeah so maybe <laughs> it's not all it's not all dour and sad but hopefully you can have a laugh in some of the plays even though they're quite serious plays <laughs> That seems then like a great time for me to thank Susie. Thank you so much for <laughs> participating in this yes. conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abadie, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Bye.